Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Branko Milanovic, author of Visions of Inequality, From the French Revolution to the End of the Cold War. Branko is Research Professor at the City University of New York and Senior Scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at CUNY. Visions of Inequality examines how six important economists understood inequality. There's not one way to think about inequality, and Bronco's study helps us understand how our thinking has evolved. Bronco, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Well, thanks a lot, Caleb. It's really a pleasure to be here. Of course. You know, th- th- this uh, this topic is, is so fascinating, and you're sort of the, the perfect person to talk about about this. Uh, you've done so much work. Uh, and but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got interested in this topic. You know, it actually, of course, goes back uh, a long time ago. It um, um, actually goes back to my undergraduate studies in in, uh, in Belgrade in the 1970s or even earlier. I mean, there are two interests that I had, and I think I've kept them throughout my life. One is in uh, interest in social issues, which actually sort of was combined with interest in history. And on the other hand, um, a sort of love for numbers. It was also mathematics, but actually it was more what Angus Madison called, um, he created the neologism, which was called, which he called chiffre fil, from French chiffre, which is the number and fil, you know, from somebody who loved a lot of certain things. So that's how actually my interest in income inequality started, because it was one area where you can actually apply empirically your interest in social issues. You know, it's you have numbers there and you have sort of analysis of, of data. So that's how it started. And um, it continued more or less like that for four decades. So previous work you've done on the topic has, has looked at, you, you looked at historical work, but you, you've really looked at contemporary uh, income inequality. And this is really uh, sort of historical study, uh, in intellectual history of crucial economists. So, so which economists did you decide to focus on for this study? And why did you choose them over others? You know, this was not particularly original. So let me list the six economists and then I'll explain. Uh, I start with Francois Kinney, who is actually by many considered the founder of political economy that was physiocrats who are actually his group. And he worked before the French Revolution. He died before the French Revolution. Adam Smith is the next one, who is the obvious choice. In, interestingly, of the six, I'll come to all of them, but Adam Smith and Kinney were, are the only two who met personally, so they actually knew each other. Uh, so obviously then, you know, he writes in the 18th century, I mean, as we know, the, the, the Wealth of Nations was published in the same year when the U.S. Declaration of Independence was made, 1776. The third one is Ricardo, whose work actually is based, actually Ricardo started actually studying political economy by reading the Wealth of Nations. The fourth one is Marx, whose work itself is more significantly based on Ricardo. Uh, the fifth one is Pareto, whose work uh, begins by uh, being very, uh, how should I say, critical of Marx in many areas, but then on, in the other areas he accepts certain parts, like class struggle, and then of course he pushes more the elite part under the class struggle part, the elite versus population. And the sixth one was Simon Kuznets, who is actually quite famous for the Kuznets uh, inverted U-shape, how inequality would develop over time. 
And then finally, I have a chapter where there is no individual. This like a chapter about the second part of the 20th century where I deal with many other people. Uh, but there is no towering individual of the size and importance of the six. So the, the six are actually, I think, a, a very non-controversial choice. They were, of course, giants in economics in generally, and they have all contributed to income distribution studies. And as far as writing this book, how did you go back through these these writers? I'm assuming these are people that you've probably spent your entire career reading, going back to. So what was it like for this project, going back and reading these texts? Yeah, it was really, uh, as you were saying, it's that's absolutely true. So actually, these are the people who I've been reading for over the years. So let me start with the easy ones. Obviously, Pareto and Kuznets, I've been teaching them in class. I actually wrote about them. They are in my book, The, the Haps and the, the Hap Notes. Uh, obviously, then uh, in global inequality, I even sort of go past Kuznets, if you can call it like that, introducing Kuznets wave. So it was kind of obvious. Uh, uh, Kenny actually became very interesting. Kenny also had a couple of articles. Kenny is a very difficult writer. I will talk more about him, but anyway, that was not news. And Marx goes back, actually, by reading of Marx, really literally goes back almost half a century. Uh, but it was a pleasure during COVID. I was actually I was reading lots of things that some uh, I reread, but many others that I have not read. For example, Marx's letters, Ricardo's letters. Uh, I reread uh, the principles of political economy, and then I read quite a lot about Adam Smith's life. So and uh, and uh, the the book, which was actually the students' notes, uh, uh, it was lectures and jurisprudence by Smith. So it was really a combination of really reading. Uh, reading new things by the authors, becoming essentially, you know, you become essentially uh, totally obsessed with them. And I did it over a little bit over two years uh, during COVID. So it was a useful, it was a way to use COVID for some other purposes. So just to kick things off, obviously look at different definitions of inequality, but is there sort of a, you know, one maybe framing definition that you can give listeners just to latch on to as we go through these different interpretations that you discuss? You know, technically, uh, you can define economic inequality in terms of access or material possession of, or possession of goods and services. So it's actually very technical definition. Uh, we use income which is income after social transfers and taxes have been paid, which is called disposable income. And what you basically do, you compare all individuals for their income and you put them all together in one measure, which you can have uh, a synthetic, so-called synthetic measures like Gini coefficient, or you can have top 1% or, or whatever you want. However, uh, in the work before Pareto, so we're talking about the work up to the beginning of the 20th century, that particular uh, way of looking on income distribution was very uncommon, was practically not used. What was used is to look at broad social classes, landlords, capitalists, and workers. So the entire part of Smith, uh, Ricardo Marx, is really class-based. So there are no individual incomes as such as kind of considered as that's not the way that they look at inequality. They look at inequality as a class thing. 
And of course, same was true with the, with Kene, with the exception that Kene looked at the legal classes because before the French Revolution, as you know, you had classes defined not to, with respect to the, not only to, with respect to their access to the means of production, they were also legally defined. So that's how there is a break, you know, between Pareto and the others because the individual comes much more forcefully in Pareto than in the 19th century authors. What did your study reveal about inequality in late feudalism, specifically looking at the work of Kinney? Well, Kinney, uh, as I said, first he defined, he's very interesting because he was the first one to define two things which are absolutely crucial for the development of political economy and income distribution status. First, he looks at the class structure of society. That was something new because mercantilists who were actually dominant then uh, looked at economics as a science, well, call it science or whatever, uh, an arts rather, of maximizing uh, power of the state and of the king. And essentially it meant maximizing control over gold and other precious materials because they believed that actually that of course gave you a power externally. So he defines social classes using really basically the French legal definitions of the time. And what is also interesting, he has obviously workers, uh, peasants who may represent a large chunk of the population in France then, and he had three ruling classes. The three ruling classes are clergy, aristocracy, and government officials. Kenneth himself was a, uh, a doctor, uh, a physician at the, on the court of, of Louis fifteen. Uh, and uh, he was a government official. Uh, and then second thing which he defines is the idea of the surplus. That's absolutely crucial because it plays a key role in Ricardo and Marx afterwards. And the surplus is, in Keynes' view, used to maintain these three classes that are not directly involved in the process of production. But without them, you don't have the judiciary, you don't have the defense, you don't have the property rights. It's basically like a, like a taxation that is necessary to make the society exist. So these are, I think, two very important contributions that Kene. There are maybe others, but you know, there are disputes on Kene, but certainly these two are very important. The, the next economist you look at, uh, Adam Smith, prob probably the most famous of all, of all economists, uh, you, you look at his his ideas of inequality. So you, you know, can you also talk a bit? At, you look a bit just at, at Smith's Smith in general. So sort of if you could introduce Smith and your reading of him and his views on inequality. You know, I would say when people start reading my book, I think really honestly they should start with the chapter on Smith because first Smith is, as you said, the most well known. Uh, people have strong opinions, even if they have not read Smith. And actually, one of the things that this chapter, in my opinion, reveals is that this lack of uh, reading Smith and being influenced by selective quotes from Smith has led to a view of Smith, which I believe is very um, uh, biased or maybe not complete. So without going into the, the discussion of the differences between theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, let me just focus on the wealth of nations. What I think is very important is Smith there first, that he had three social groups, landlords, capitalists, whom he doesn't call capitalists, but he calls employers or masters, because the word capitalism was not yet used. You know, uh, Smith talks of commercial society, not of capitalist society. And the third groups, group is uh, workers, laborers, or servants, actually. And uh, what is interesting there is that he, and that's where the income distribution stuff 
kicks in, and uh, this is much less well known, is that he believes that the interest of two groups, landlords and workers, are consistent with the interest of society. Whereas the interests of capitalists are not, and I actually emphasize that, and it's very clearly said. The reason is the following. He says, workers' wages go up as society gets more advanced. So they do have an interest that the society develops. Landlords' rent, Smith says, also goes up because there is greater demand for the products of the earth, be it, you know, cotton, mining, or whatever, and the rent goes up. He says, the only group whose interests are opposed to the interest of advancement are capitalists because there is more capital being produced. And then he says, uses Netherlands as an example, and the interest or the rate of profit goes down. So it's very important. Then he says, but who is influencing government policy? It is precisely the employers or the masters because they are, more, they are the most sophisticated class. Landlords, he says, are indolent, so they don't do anything. And workers are really not educated. So we have a class whose interest runs generally against the popular interest, being the most powerful political. And hence, he says, there are famous quotes that are not often seen on the, in the Wall Street Journal, where it says that you should never follow the interest of employers because they are a group that actually uh, sort of plots against the interests of society. So he actually is very anti-capitalist. And that part I thought was quite interesting, and I think it's the part which is very seldom revealed. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting reading of Smith, and certainly one that that is not uh, not something that you, that you hear uh, in in an everyday conversation about his contributions to economics. Uh, it, you know, the, the next economist that you look at is, is David Ricardo, uh, it, it, and I was wondering if you would introduce him and, and also his his studies of income inequality uh, in England. Uh, Ricardo, of course, builds on Smith, as I said, actually, Ricardo was a trader. He was probably the, the richest economist ever uh, because he made enormous amount of money on the market. Uh, and then he uh, starts basically reading Smith and reacting. Now, for income distribution, he's obviously crucial. Uh, as we know, you know, the very beginning of the principles is that that the principal probably political economy is the distribution. And he, interestingly, in the opposition to Smith, although it is, you have really to pull it up and you study his income distribution, he is a great champion of capitalism because he sees the main conflict as being between landlords and capitalists. The conflict follows from the fact that if you keep, the whole group is written as a plea against the, the, the core laws, if you keep the car laws, it would mean that the uh, cost of food, which is the key ingredient in the determination of the wage, that cost of food will increase. If the cost of food increases, there are two consequences. First, the landlords get richer because the rent goes up, because you are using less fertile soils, so everybody who has a more fertile soil gets higher return. So landlords profit from that. And workers do not profit directly because their real wage is really fixed more or less at the subsistence, but the nominal wage goes up and it cuts into a profit. So his view is that unless you get rid of the core laws, we are actually poised for stagnation because eventually the rate of profit will go down to zero and, and capitalists will go up. And of course, the, inter the, the real message is 
we have to get rid of it so that capitalists are able to have high returns and they're the only active class that invests. And so in, in his view, of course, the, the class conflict is very sharp, almost, well, maybe even sharper than Smith, but the class conflict has different outcome and the classes have different interests than in the case of Smith. In this case, actually, he sees capitalists as the only active class. Capitalist investments are absolutely necessary to grow, to grow the economy, and landlords are the main impediment. So you then look look at Marx, who, who clearly has very different views than Ricardo, though he's uh, extremely influenced by Ricardo's study. So I, I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about uh, you know just the influence that some of these economists had, even though they had different views, just the way in which they they looked at each other or borrowed borrowed ideas as you introduce Marx as well. Well, you know, for Marx, I don't think there is any doubt that Schumpeter said many years ago, uh, the only economist that that Marx would consider as his teacher was Ricardo. And you just cannot have Marx almost without Ricardo. So if he simply continues along the Ricardo spot, but now the landlords disappear because they become less important as a political, as an economic class. And then the conflict, which was very sharp in Ricardo between the three classes. You know, many people talk uh, in the U.S. nowadays sort of sort of negatively about the class conflict, but this is the essence of writing in Smith, Ricardo, and Marx, especially, I think, even in, in, in Ricardo, where the class conflict is really at its extreme version, I would say more so than even in Marx, uh, because it's really a distributional game. Who is going to get what? So in the case of Marx, of course, these are two, two main classes, and uh, my main point, and I will not go into all the details there, but the main, main point is that the, the general perception that Marx, uh, that exists, that Marx um, argued that there will be immiseration of the proletariat, which means the reduction of the real wage, and there will be concentration of capital in fewer and fewer hands, is very hard to defend on textual basis. I think equally likely, and in my opinion, more likely, is the view that Marx would argue, and did argue, that uh, the development of capitalism would be associated with increase in real wage, but the decreasing labor share. So let me just make this very clear. Real wage can go up, but the share of labor or, or wages will go down. And that's exactly what's happening in the U.S. is like 30 years. Real wage has gone up, but the share of labor in GDP has gone down. And on, on uh, profits, he had this so famous so-called law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit, which means that the rate of profit, in his view, would go down. And if you put these two things together, increase real wage and the decline in rate of profit, you can defend the view that Marx had uh, sort of an implicitly held that income distribution under capitalism we can improve. So I say it again, improve. I'm not saying that's the only view. I actually have four different views. I think essentially Marx never finished, uh, as we know, did not finish capital. And uh, I think we can find different interpretations. So after Marx, you note a, a transition from looking at inequality as something between classes to something that's between individuals. Uh, and I, I was wondering if you talk about why this transition occurred uh, and, and Pareto, who's you, you, you sort of hold up as, as indicative of this, of this shift. Um, there, we can speculate first why it uh, occurred. Uh, 
the class conflict was still very important. However, Pareto, I think he had two advantages that led him towards that point of view. First, he was very mathematical. He was an engineer by training. And secondly, it was the time where the first tax data became available from a number of European cities, small states, essentially really smaller German states, Italian cities, and so on. So for the first time, you had empirical data on income distribution across households individuals. So you could actually move further from classes. You know, when I talked about Marx and Ricardo and Smith, they did not have microdata. They had knowledge about, vague knowledge about what happened to the real wage, what happened to the profit rate, what happened to the rent, but not really microdata. Uh, so that was, the, I think, the one reason. Another is, well, there are two actually dimensions, mathematical training of Pareto, and secondly, for the first time, been the existence of the micro-fiscal data. The third one is interesting because I think it goes to the Pareto's, to the ideology of Pareto, which was anti-Marxist, uh, and uh, emphasized in his sociological work the role of the elite. So now we have really a serendipitous development there. We have tax data which come from the top of the income distribution of these different city-states, cities or small states, and we have Pareto who believes that the main conflict is between the elite and the population. So these tax data are then used to say, look, these are the data about the elite, like what we will say about top 1% today. And then he finds that income distribution of that group does not change very much over time. And then he says, well, this is the proof that whatever political system you introduce, a social system, like socialism, you are not going to change distribution. So we have a very interesting uh, sort of conflation or um, confluence, rather, of several elements that lead Pareto to his preferred theory of the circulation of the elites, that the elites can change, but the income distribution will not change. And he uses that, of course, to deny the, the possibility of an improvement of income distribution under socialism. So I think it was a very interesting development historically and um, also in an individual sense because very few people uh, would have had all this interest that Pareto had. Uh, I'm curious what your general assessment of Pareto's law, uh, whether or not it, it's a useful uh, tool or it's uh, or it's something that, that's maybe best to be uh, consigned to the dustbin of history. No, no, it is an absolutely useful tool. I'm using it, people are using it. This is the first definition of a power law. And you know, power laws have since, well, exploded, so to say. Uh, there are many of them. Uh, so it is super useful. The claim that Pareto made, that that particular Pareto law would always have practically one constant uh, uh, coefficient, so that actually it would be always the same distribution or similar distribution. That, of course, is not true. That we know that actually different societies have different, uh, the, the top incomes are distributed according to what is a, a power law, but the power law with different coefficients. So the distribution is not the same. So it is very important to, to highlight that you can have, for example, log normal distribution, but with different coefficients, which gives you entirely different 
you know, distribution. You can have power law, but with different coefficients, which again gives a different distribution. So I would say uh, we still use, uh, well, obviously, we use quite a lot of Pareto law, not only in economics, you use it for the size of the cities, number of uh, letters, uh, uh, frequency of the letters in the alphabet. You use it like for many things, uh, floods, for example. Uh, but uh, the, the main contention that there is invariability of the distribution, that, that is wrong. So the first, all, all these economists that we've discussed so far, they're all, all, all European. Uh, and, and the last economist that you profile, Simon Kuznets, uh, and, and he, of course, looks at inequality, uh, looking at the, the relationship between inequality and the development of and modernization of nations, uh, and, and writing at a time when America had just gone through this unbelievable transformation. So what, what can you tell us about Simon Kuznets and, and his views on inequality? You know, Simon Kuznets is, of course, I think probably one of the most Maybe after Keynes, will be the most influential, most important economist of the of the 20th century, probably, uh, because he's at the foundation of two uh, pillars of economics: uh, economic growth, because he is essentially a person with others, with Stone and others, made who create who defines national accounts, the GDP, and on the other hand, the second pillar is income distribution. So if you think that I'm sort of statistically minded, this is the definition of the first and the second moment of the distribution. The first moment is the mean, which is GDP per capita. The second moment is the distribution. And that's what Kuznets is. You find him at both. And uh, But he also lives at the time of, first, huge, I cannot say prosperity, but huge power, economic power of the United States and prosperity improvements. And secondly, at the time where income inequality in the U.S. declines very significantly, so much so that uh, I think it was Arthur Burns who wrote, actually, he said, in 20 years, we have passed, I think, one-third or one-half of the road to full equality. So it was like, he says, we started with the top 1% having, I cannot remember, like 22% of the GDP, and now we are at 15. So we basically have gone like almost one third of the road to fully fight. So there are two very optimistic pictures. Growth is doing well. US power is at the peak, economic, political, and others. And income inequality is getting low. So his view is relatively optimistic. And that's why, he, you know, not why, but the, the whole story is optimistic that you would have a period of increasing inequality. That's why this famous inverted U-shaped curve comes into being in 1955-56. And you would have an increase in inequality as you develop. And people move to the cities and actually there is a greater variety of wages and so on. And gaps between rural and urban areas appear. And then you would have a decline. So it's a very kind of optimistic theory, which has been used in the 70s and the 80s, look at South Korea. You say, okay, well, we have really an increase in equality, but the, the economy is really doing very well, and just keep on waiting until there are economic forces themselves, which would lead to a decline in equality. So that was where Kuznets comes in, and sometimes he was criticized for that maybe overly optimistic view, but I think we have to understand Kuznets in the context of his time, the same way that we have to understand Marx or Kinney. So, so as you mentioned at the outset, uh, the, the the final chapter or, or the second to last chapter of the book, you look at inequality and just the, the sort of, uh, let's say, 
indifference towards inequality. People not not concerned as much with uh, with uh, nominal inequality. Uh, what do you what do you attribute to this? Is it just the the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, and the end of the, the the communist dream, or uh, are there other things? And, and what can we learn about how inequalities, the view of inequality, changed at this period? You know, this is of course a pessimistic chapter. It's titled uh, "The Eclipse," and what happens after Kuznets, I think, is interesting. So there, that chapter is divided into parts. One looks at inequality studies in socialist countries, and another inequality studies in capitalist. Uh, I intentionally put the socialist studies first because you cannot understand what happened in the U.S. without taking into account what happened under you know, communist countries. The reason is as follows. Uh, there are many reasons why it was very difficult to study uh, inequality uh, under socialism. First, because social classes kind of disappeared. You didn't have uh, capitalists anymore. Everybody was a worker of the state. So the class structure changed. Secondly, uh, the implicit assumption was that the background institutions are now fine because we don't have exploitation, we don't have capitalists. So maybe you should study inequality, but their view was fundamentally the same as Hayek's view in the other context. Hayek was never in favor of studying inequality because he said it has no meaning. You know, you have differences, but if your system is perfectly market, market system, it just doesn't mean anything. I'm richer than you. That's because I've supplied some services that people value. So it has no other meaning. Similarly, under communism, they say, why should we study inequality? We know that's a perfect system. Yes, some people are richer because they work harder and you, we pay them, but there is no reason. Then, of course, it led also to a dislike, political dislike to study that because if there is some high inequality, that, of course, contradicts the claim of classlessness of the system. So that's where you then have to start with the U.S. and the West, but the U.S. in particular. U.S. was in an ideological competition with the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union claims we have no classes, U.S. claims the same, we have no classes. We say we have differences and we have, and that's where neoclassical economics helps, we have people who have different assets. You have human capital, you're a worker, you're going to work. I have capital and I'm just a capitalist and I put the capital to use and I receive it. So you have total sort of obliteration of the class struggle and class distinction. You get rid of the elite because you say, okay, we have a system in the U.S. We have a system whereby everybody, regardless of his background, can reach the top. So we don't have an elite and we don't have a population. So essentially, you uh, make it rather, how should I say, meaningless to study income inequality in that kind of, a, uh, how should I say, um, conflictual way. So wh what do we have in the West? We have a huge number of e empirical income inequality studies, but without introduction of politics. So politics is banned. Class structure is banned. Really, the social fabric is banned. There is no texture. There are only the data any evolution. I mean, the, I'm a great uh, fan of, of Tony Atkinson, but when you read his history of British wealth inequality over two centuries, you have detailed things about how taxation has changed this or that, but there is almost nothing about class struggle, strides, political strife, uh, political parties. It's all gone. So that was the eclipse. For, for you, it, it, this is inequality is something that you've studied for so long. So I, it, you've thought probably more deeply about inequality that, that, 
than uh, 99.9% of, of the population uh, from, from an economic perspective. D- did any of your of your views change or, or are there things about inequality that you're maybe more sensitive to now after undergoing the study? Oh, I'm actually more sensitive. And I think this last book really made me very sensitive on that to realize how much um, our view on what is inequality depends on the social context. And you have seen this from the conversation that we had, because it's really basically all on social context. That made me realize that certain types of inequality, inequalities, uh, for example, gender and race, were really absent in this world that I have been discussing. They have become much more present now. And uh, uh, this is, of course, an enrichment because uh, the authors, you know, Smith was against slavery, Marx was against slavery, all that, but it didn't really was not incorporated in the studies of inequality. You know, Kuznets didn't deal with that, obviously, there was no more slavery. But I think that we are seeing new markers of distinction between individuals. And that is essentially determined by society in where, where we live. And that actually made me sort of think that uh, that in the future, maybe they will be yet different. And my work, last point about global inequality that you know, made me, of course, realize what another important marker is the place where you are born or where you live. So essentially, we have three markers which are really not present before. Uh, gender, uh, race, and uh, a country, which enters the game only when you study global inequality, because when you study inequality within a country, obviously everybody is the same. Yeah. Well, well, Ronco, thank you so much for being guest on the New Books Network. The book is uh, Visions of Inequality. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's just a fascinating study of so many people, and I'm sure listeners, you know, have heard here how how uh, how in depth you go. Uh, and, and also, I, I do recommend uh, your your other books too uh, that that look at at more contemporary political issues and inequality. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Clive. It was really great, great questions. It was a pleasure to be with you.